0: Oh man, Rachel, we're finally tackling the scary topic of GMOs, or genetically modified organisms. Ooh. <laughs> In reality, there's a lot of fear-mongering surrounding GMOs, and our goal over the next two podcasts is to remove the fear surrounding GMOs so that you can make your own decision about whether or not you want to use these products, and not just make that decision from a place of fear, like a lot of... Anti-GMO organizations or even pro-GMO organizations—they—they use that fear to their advantage.
1: Exactly. Our goal on Seminises is never to tell you what to believe, but just to destigmatize the science behind different topics to make it understandable for you, and to let you make your own decisions after hearing both sides of the story.
0: This first podcast is focusing on the history of GMOs and how they work.
1: The next podcast will hone in on why GMOs are controversial and the implications for GMOs in our world. As always, you know we welcome any comments and suggestions and have our email in the show notes so you can contact us um, via email or Instagram or Twitter if you have questions or comments about this episode.
0: We talk a lot on the podcast about genetics, so you may be pretty familiar with it by now, but as we begin the conversation surrounding GMOs, we need to get back to the basics of genetics. The word genetically modified organism sounds pretty scary, so let's break that down.
1: Genetics is the study of our genes, or our DNA, which is our genetic code. DNA acts as an instruction manual to tell our body how to make the building blocks for our body, which are typically thought of as proteins, right? Everyone has the same genes, but small differences in the DNA code explains why we all look different.
0: Animals, plants, humans, we all have DNA. A genetically modified organism, or a GMO as we'll call it throughout the rest of the podcast, is one that has DNA that we wouldn't normally expect to be there. However, it's important to note that the term GMO is less descriptive than we might think because there are some instances of gene editing where plants are not considered GMO, or other instances like organic plants, which people would consider natural, but they're actually a GMO. The way a GMO is defined might sound scary, but in reality, it's building upon a long history of both plant and animal breeding. Animal and
1: plant breeding has been going on around the world for many, many years. A farmer would see a cow that produces more milk. Uh, we actually had a podcast about this, <laughs> where we talked about how, pod- how um, farmers order the best cow sperm for their for their breeding
0: (laughs) yes Um, and i think that was eventually like affecting them negatively for the cows yeah
1: (laughs) but anyways um farmers will select these desirable traits to mate their animals in hopes of you know for the instance of cows producing cows that make more milk and that same thing would happen with plants. If a farmer saw a plant that produced a lot of fruit, they would try and breed that plant to produce more plants like it. Or if a plant was resistant to pests, that, then they would try to make more of that plant to get a pest resistant um, line.
0: While sometimes this happens by farmers consciously choosing the more attractive trait, it can also happen without conscious selection. A great example of this is how farming techniques have drastically altered the properties of wheat through the years.
1: So before a practice of farming was in place at all, you know, in the wild, wheat seeds are delicately attached to the stalks through a part of the plant that's called the rachis. Since wild wheat has a flimsy rachis, those seeds are only loosely attached to the stalk, and a light breeze can release the seeds. So as you can imagine, this is very advantageous to wild wheat, since... Um, it releases those seeds into the soil and helps spread the seed of that plant.
0: However, when farmers collect the harvest, they cut the stalks. So seeds that break away easily are lost and don't make it into storage to be planted next year. Over time, farmers accidentally enriched for wheat seeds that were attached by a stronger rachis because they would take the seeds that they got from the stalks. And if the ones that weren't attached strongly didn't come along, then they did not have those crops propagated for the next year. So this strong attachment of the rachis can be attributed to a mutation in a single gene that the farmers were unknowingly selecting for. It's also important
1: to point out that in the wild, such a mutation would be deadly. Those ripe seeds would stay on the stalk and never be released into the soil. This genetic change of wheat having a weak rachis to wheat having a strong rachis was a complete accident of better farming technology
0: so that's an example of selection where it was unknown the farmers didn't really know what they were doing but the way of breeding plants of animals is called selective breeding or artificial selection as it's also known farmers are selecting plants and animals to breed this isn't happening naturally farmer is considered an outside entity from nature and the farmer is selecting the animals thus it's artificial selection for people very focused on the natural, selective breeding isn't natural. Just letting whatever animals or, or plants breed would be natural. And like we discussed with the wheat before, sometimes the product ends up being a plant that is dependent upon humans for survival.
1: Selective breeding is not looked down upon like GMOs are, however. Even though selective breeding and GMOs are accomplishing the same goals of having a cow produce more milk or a plant produce more fruit or be resistant to pests,
0: You can think of selective breeding as a blunt force, and GMOs as a silver bullet. For the sake of our podcast, we're going to focus more on plants. GMOs work by knowing the specific genes that impact fruit production or resistance to pesticides, and fine-tuning the plant to produce more fruit. It's basically a sped-up version of selective breeding, since we can sequence plant genomes and do experiments to see what plant genes contribute to these different functions.
1: It's important to note here that there are different types of genetic editing that happens in plants. Some kinds of genetic editing just delete a gene, silence a gene, insert a gene from the same plant, or insert a gene from a related plant. All of those mechanisms of genetic engineering can happen naturally in nature.
0: Besides these happening in nature, farmers would find unique ways to crossbreed plants or expose the seeds to chemicals that would change the plant DNA. And interestingly, there's not been an uproar about that when a farmer uses similar mechanisms to accomplish the same goal as what GMOs do.
1: Yeah, when I started reading into you know, the more traditional farming techniques of biotechnology, I was kind of shocked to see that some of the methods are not considered genetically modifying, um, even though they involve exposing the seeds to um, radiation or nasty chemicals like colchicine, which is a drug that's sometimes used in chemotherapy and, and interferes with cell division. Um, but we're linking a great article in the notes that talks about how impossible it is to really truly define what a GMO is because the same techniques are being used in, that are being used in the lab are used by nature and farmers, but just take way longer to result in crops with certain traits, whereas the molecular techniques we use in the lab just kind of speed up the process.
0: Yeah, I mean, this line between GMO and natural products can be really confusing. For example, one of the first gene modification strategies that was used came from a naturally occurring plant pathogen, Agrobacterium tumefaciens. Probably not saying that right. No, but if you've great. ever seen I forgot a large the pronunciation, i sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm just used to pronouncing, pronouncing Latin Do you science you speak Latin names. in your sleep? <laughs> I actually studied Latin for five years, oh. but I remember barely anything. <laughs> if you've ever seen a large gall growing on a tree, which basically just looks like a like round tumor coming off the tree, that is likely due to this common soil bacterium.
1: Researchers discovered that the bacterium is able to grow on the plant by inserting its genes into plant cells to get the plant to make certain proteins for it.
0: With this knowledge, researchers were able to take out the virulent genes, or the genes that cause these galls or tumors to form on the trees, and they could replace them with a gene of interest. For starters, they introduced an antibiotic-resistance gene so they could easily treat the plants with antibiotic to see whether the gene transfer worked. Scientists are often inspired by nature to create new technologies.
1: Yeah, I mean, we are not reinventing the wheels with a lot of these strategies. Even CRISPR is something that, you know, we didn't uh, design that. We stole that from bacteria. So
0: We're not as smart as we think we are. Like, scientists portray themselves as knowing everything about the world, but in reality, we know a very small amount.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to have the eye for marketing, right? Like, CRISPR wouldn't have just found its way into our hands, but you have to see the potential there, but we definitely steal a lot of ideas from sales. GMO has definitely become a buzzword in the culture, and we'll talk more about that in the next podcast, but it's important to mention the difficulty of defining what a GMO
0: is. Getting back to our historical timeline, the first GMO on the market was a tomato called the Flavor Saver Tomato, and it came out in 1994.
1: Tomatoes are an interesting fruit because the longer they sit on the shelf, the more mealy and less flavorful they become. And come on, we all know how important it is for a tomato to taste good if you've ever made uh, some pico de gallo.
0: (laughs) Because of this lack of flavor, tomatoes are normally shipped green and forced to ripen by being blasted with a gas. But in the process, this actually messes with the tomato's flavor. The enzyme polygalacturonase is what degrades the tomato, specifically the tomato's cell walls. So scientists thought they could do some molecular magic to interfere with this enzyme, which would allow tomatoes to ripen normally in the store. They were able to add a gene to the tomato that blocked the action of this enzyme and prevented the tomato from being degraded. Thus, it helped preserve some of the flavor of the tomato and avoided the gas process that wasn't very natural. This gene was actually from the same tomato, so it wasn't adding a gene from another species, which we'll talk about a little later in the podcast.
1: This process they use to add this gene to the tomato is called DNA cloning. DNA cloning may sound a little intimidating, but it simply allows scientists to take a gene from bacteria or another species and put it into uh, another organism, such as a plant. Farmers may want this done to produce a more nutritious vegetable or a crop that's resistant to pesticides.
0: For those of you who have made t-shirt quilts, DNA cloning is very much like that. When you make a t-shirt quilt, you're taking parts of t-shirts you love and that you want to display and you're assembling them into a quilt. The specific aspects of the t-shirts that make them special to you remain in the quilt, but the quilt is still its own entity. It's still a quilt. It's a quilt, but it's a patchwork of many t-shirts. And it's a process to put the quilt together in a way that you want, and sometimes you may need to move around the squares to get the certain look. DNA cloning works similarly by taking normally one small fragment of DNA you're interested in, most often from another species, but sometimes from the same species, and you can put it into your species of interest. You retain the function of the fragment of DNA from the other species, But the species you put it into is still the same species, but it can now take on a new function or a new ability. This analogy might make it seem quite simple, but in reality, this process of DNA cloning is quite complicated.
1: In the example of the flavor-savored tomato, they didn't add a gene from another species, but instead reversed the sequence of the gene that produced that polygalacturonase enzyme. Um, that protein to stop the enzyme from being produced. So technically, this is a genetically modified organism, but the gene added is from the same tomato species.
0: When we're trying to do gene cloning in the lab, we start by getting the sequence of the gene we're interested in. There are all sorts of online tools that can help you identify the sequence you need. One we use in the lab, it's called the UCSC Genome Browser. This genome browser comes from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and you can actually go and look this up and Do this yourself. But what it can do when we go to this website, you can type in a gene name, look at how the gene is constructed, and then download the sequence of the gene. And the sequence codes for a gene that makes the protein. And your end goal is to make a protein. So you need the gene sequence to get you there. And you can now do analysis on this gene sequence.
1: Yeah. Once you have the gene sequence, you can use it to design a plasmid to put it in. And plasmids, uh, we may have mentioned them on the podcast before, but they're basically just circular pieces of DNA that certain organisms like bacteria can uptake quite easily um, or with a little nudging with something like an electric pulse or a heat shock. Um, And then they can take this plasmid, internalize the DNA, and the plasmid acts as a package or delivery system for your gene. So within your plasmid, you package up your gene sequence of interest and um, that plasmid typically has some kind of antibiotic resistance gene so you can select for it.
0: Once you get your plasmid you introduce it into the bacteria, grow the bacteria and then treat the bacteria with antibiotics. So the bacteria that have your plasmid will not die because they have an antibiotic resistance gene. Then you can sequence the bacteria to ensure that it has your sequence that you're interested in And if the bacteria have taken up your sequence, then you can grow a ton of the specific bacteria that have the sequence you want. They will then use your sequence to make the protein you're looking for, and you can then purify the protein. So the bacteria become little factories, generating lots of either DNA or protein, depending on what you need. Yep, bacteria are often the workhorses of biology. (laughs) But trying to
1: genetically engineer plants is a whole different feat. Wounded plants whether that be shoots, leaves, roots, or stems, are injected with a soil bacteria, which has the plasmid with the DNA of interest inside it. The plants are then grown in a culture media and eventually planted when roots are formed. After some growth, the plants are sequenced to see if they took up that DNA that you wanted. According to the paper about the flavor-saver tomato, 50 different plant lines were created in order to create the plant with the right sequence. Man, that's so many plants. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of work. As someone who um, does not have a green thumb in gardening and kills a lot of things,
0: I don't think that would be achievable. Not my idea of a fun thesis project. (laughs) One of the kinds of gene editing which is often considered the more controversial one is called transgenic gene editing. Transgenic gene editing of plants is when there is a gene from another species or a related species of plant that's put into the plant of interest. Technically, the Flavor Saver tomato is not a transgenic plant because the gene came from the tomato and was just reversed and put back in. Transgenic plants help keeps crop growing or more nutritious and can be protected from pesticides, insects, and mold.
1: Transgenic plants are considered controversial because it's not considered natural to take a gene from, say, a rice plant and put it into a wheat plant, or a gene from a fish and put it into tomatoes, as we'll discuss next week. <laughs>
0: There is definitely controversy regarding GMOs, especially because the U.S. allows much more gene editing in plants than other countries do, but we will have to save that for the next Demonistas podcast episode. But for now, we hope we've provided you with a better understanding of what GMOs are and how they're made so that you can kind of make some decisions for yourself.